didn't just have his followers. He also had his disciples, but he didn't even just have his disciples he was close with. But within that discipleship group, he was closer with three, James, John, and Peter. He had best friends. The importance of friendship should not be underestimated. It's actually one of the distinctives of advance, this movement of churches we belong to, believe it or not. It might sound a bit bizarre, but one of our distinctives is friendship. But that is how Jesus said we would be known, isn't it? By our love for one another. Way back in 1841, I was reading about this. I've never actually read it, Confession. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson begins his essay, Friendship, by describing being with a person he's just met, and he's really excited about meeting them. He thinks they're great. They're getting on like a house on fire. And then, oh no, then, here's what happens. We talk better than we, than we are wont, uh, want. We have the nimblest fancy, a richer memory, and our dumb devil has taken leave for the time. But then he says, the stranger begins to intrude his partialities, his definitions, his defects into the conversation. And that is when it is all over. I think often we quite like the surface level relationships. And then when it gets a little bit too deep, when we're sharing stuff that actually is a bit hard work and we don't really want to deal with, that kind of relationship is difficult for us at times. And we don't want to enter into it. We kind of back away from it. We run away from it. And I think today we have a serious friendship problem like that. Loads of pals on social media, but no one that you really know and no one that really knows you. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Many companions won't do it. They're important, but we also need depth. Some relationships will flourish, while others will become toxic. And so we're going to look at Jonathan and David as we continue in our series, Heart and House. We're going to talk about uh, their friendship in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And I want us, instead of being weirded out by their intimacy, okay, because we're Scottish, or maybe you're English, you're British, like, I want to challenge us, okay? Don't just be like, oh, they're like weirdly close with one another. Oh. How about we use them as a great example of some of the depth that we should have in some of our relationships. Very few friendships enter the kindred spirit category. But I believe God calls us to have friends like that. Sometimes he will gift us with those kind of friends. Last week, the comparison was between Saul and David. That's still going to be in our passage today today. But really, the comparison here is is Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan is a particular type of friend to David, and Saul is, well, he's the opposite. He's not his friend. He becomes his enemy, and we're going to see why that happens. One is on the throne, Saul, and the other is the heir apparent. He's, He's next in line for the throne, but they act so differently, even though they both have so much to lose by God anointing another outside of their family to be the true king, the king 
after God's own heart. It's a surprising shepherd uh, choice of the shepherd boy who God is giving increasing favor. So I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 9. And then what I'd encourage you to do is sometime this week, read both chapters, but we're not going to do it right now just for the sake of time. It says this, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as, his, as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The best kind of friends share a passion for God. At first, everyone loves David. Even Saul loves David. In fact, he loves him so much and all the success he's having that he promotes him again and again. But something has taken place in Saul's heart before this whole episode that means that it's always going to end up being toxic. Back in chapter 13, after God has made the consequences of walking away from him clear, Saul does exactly that. He walks away from God, he does his own things, he stops listening to the prophet Samuel, he stops listening to God, and he does his own thing. And the result is that God removes his spirit from him and allows an evil spirit to come on him. Yet even then, God is being kind to Saul. He shows him what it means to be separated from God. He's offering him ways back to God. He even brings David, the shepherd boy, into his courts to play him into the presence of God. So David's there, he's in the courts playing away. And when he does, the presence of God comes and this, this evil spirit relents. The mercy of God it says this in chapter 16, 14. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. You see that? So even in judgment, God is being merciful. He's using both those things, his kindness and his judgment, as tools to see that Saul might come back to him. But because he's committed in his heart 
to live for himself and his own kingdom, and he's not willing to relinquish control, ah, it never happens for Saul. He continues his own way and doesn't return to God. Saul's heart was given to himself. Jonathan, however, he had given his heart to God. So when the brides of Israel come out and they start to celebrate David and they start singing about all his victories, the one saving them from the Philistines. And chapter 18 then keeps repeating that the Lord is with David. Verses 12, 14, 28. Saul is filled with envy, with jealousy, while David delights. He delights, sorry, Jonathan delights in David's victories and success even though they both have as much to lose. Remember, Jonathan is heir apparent. Saul decides to watch David closely. That's what the text says. When actually it's his own heart that he needs to watch closely. Are you watching your heart closely? Are there parts of your life where you've shut God out You've made a decision. I'm going my own way here. It is immensely dangerous to do that. These sorts of commitment in the heart come up in biographies, don't they? From that moment, I committed myself to fill in the blank or to never fill in the blank. But you always see these framed in a really positive way. Have you noticed that? But that's because the biographies only get written about the success stories. They don't get written about the innumerable amounts of stories out there where people have committed something in their heart that is actually toxic. I'm never going to listen to them again. I'm never going to talk to them again. I'm never going to be told what to do again. All these kinds of commitments that people say in their hearts but actually are toxic. And the ultimate one, I'm never going to go and receive from God again. Where we are not given over to God in every area of our lives, we give the enemy a foothold to come between us and God and cause havoc. And not just us and God, but one another. We've got to keep helping each other out to live for God with everything we've got in every area of our lives because absolutely every relationship that we're involved in depends upon it. David has loads of success. The more he does, the harder it is for Saul. Yet Jonathan couldn't be happier. Here's a question for you. Do you delight in the success of your friends? even when you're not successful, even when you're not doing well, do you delight when your friend does? No, not always. Pray that you would. There's a heart issue there. Pray that you would. I once heard Jamie, who uh, leads Vineyard West End, say that God had given him a picture And this has always stuck with me. I found this so powerful. He said that when he was praying one day, God gave gave him this picture 
where he was running up a hill and there was barbed wire in front of him. And he was running up with a bunch of other guys that he was running up this hill with. Guys that he was spending loads of time with discipling. And instead of him trying to find a way to cut the wires or jump over, he felt God say to him, fall on your face on the barbed wire and let them run over you. And it's always stuck with me, that story, because I think that's exactly what we're supposed to be for one another. I think that is the kind of motives that we need in order to have these deep friendships. Number two, the best kind of friends make and keep commitments. The kind of commitment that Jonathan and David make to one another seems strange, doesn't it? On first read, what is this? The only friendships we make like that these days or that I've seen these days are usually scrawled on like toilet walls or something, you know, in school. Like, uh, I don't know. Who did, who did I say down here? Jade and Leah. Jade and Leah, the BFFs forever with a four, right? But then you'll see like a week later, it's, it's scribbled out, it's scribbled out. And it's probably showing how old I am. You probably do this all, all online now or something. Scribbled out. And instead it's like some four-letter word about Jade from Leah, right? Like that's the kind of commitments that, that we see in this culture. But we don't really see this kind of proper confidence, do we? We don't see people saying, I'm going to make a commitment of friendship to you that's going to last forever. We don't see that. No, this is all in from David and Jonathan. They are not messing about. 1 Samuel 20, 42 gets even more explicit about it later on. It says, Jonathan says, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. You see, it's a commitment built on the love of God. You see that? It's built on the relationships that they both already have with God. It's the kind of relationship that people who know God can have. But if you don't know God, you actually can't go as deep as this. And as 1 and 2 Samuel commentary, Peter Lightheart describes their covenant verse 3 like this. He says, a formal, it's a formal bond that gave order and prominence to a relationship based on love. In other words, this is, this is a commitment that isn't only about how we feel. There'll be ups and downs. There'll be tough times. But I'm always going to stick by you. No matter what, I'm going to stick by you. It's like a marriage covenant. I'm going to be your mate no matter what. When Jonathan makes that covenant, he does something that might seem a little bizarre. He essentially dethrones himself before he's even on the throne. He gives over his robe. He gives over his weapons and his armor. What's he saying there? He's saying that I see that God has anointed you to be the next king, not me, even though I'm next in line to the throne. And I am willing to dethrone myself so that you, the rightful king, not in the world's eyes, because in the world's eyes, I'm the rightful king. But the rightful king before God, I'm willing 
for you to take my throne. That's radical friendship. And that's the kind of friendship that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are called to. All the while, Saul is defending his throne, resisting God's will to raise up his leader because he's so concerned about his own glory. Have you made commitments to your closest friends? As weird as that might be. Commitments that mean you're for them and you're going to stick by them through thick and thin. Number three, the best kind of friends go on mission adventures together. Linz uh, was, I don't know if you know this, but Linz was a mish kid in Nepal. And um, it's a, it always amazes me when they get together with other families who were also missionaries at the same time, who'd been trained together or went out to Nepal together. Because when they do, there's this special bond, especially between the parents, which just flabbergasts me. They're so close. There's such a love between them. And they get, usually get around the dinner table and you know, they just start laughing straight away. It's like they're straight back to where they were, however many years ago it is now, 30 years ago. They truly love one another. And I think what it is, is that they were together in God on mission. And there's a depth that you have from that that is really difficult to replicate. In fact, I would say you can't. They do all kinds of things together, these types of friends. One of them is that they resist the enemy's schemes together. David is under attack. Saul's trick was to give David a prominent military role in exchange for a daughter, first with Merab in verse 17 and then with Michal in verse 21. And he hopes that what will happen is David will then go out to battle on some of these missions that he'll send him on and he will die. First time David manages to get out of it while still somehow respecting Saul's role as king. Second time he marries Michal but he goes out to battle and wins the battle. In fact, he's told to get 100 foreskins, and he comes back with 200 foreskins. Now you might be like, well, that is so bizarre. Ian, I can't believe you said four a four-letter word expletive, and you now talked about foreskins. Well, they used to collect foreskins in battle because it was a, a way of numbering the deaths. It's a way of numbering uh, how much you'd won the battle by. And so they bring it back and be like collectors. So they, they literally bring it back and prove to the king, here's how many we killed. Look, count them out. And so that's what he did. And, but he's such a romantic, he came back with twice as many. You know, it's like going to, it's like going to the BP garage and you, uh, you think, I'll, I'll get the small bunch. No, no, I'll get the, I'll get the double, double bunch. That's what I'm going to do. But he entered, what happens here is David is protected by God in this spiritual battle. And he's fighting side by side with Jonathan all the way. And Jonathan is with him all the way through. Listen, we don't battle for land anymore. Thankfully, we don't collect foreskins. That was a foreshadow of a far better kingdom 
that we now belong to. But the spiritual battle still rages. The battle for people to see the world transformed for Jesus, the battle to see people come to know and love him as their savior, as their king, as their friend, the battle to see this city transformed for the glory of God. Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We enter into spiritual battle together. If you want to go deep with someone, pray with them in spiritual battle. If you want to go deep with someone, sing with them in spiritual battle. Go and evangelize together. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you as you go. And you will have a bond that you cannot have otherwise. Charles Finney, the uh, famous, uh, one of the famous ministers involved with uh, the awakening in the East Coast of the United States, said this, Nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Remember, I'd just become a Christian and one of my mates had as well and we were just on fire for God. He lived in this old house, um, big old house, and in the attic, the previous owners had a sauna. So we turned it into a prayer room as you do. And so we would go up into that prayer room and we would pray and we would pray and we would pray. I cannot tell you the bond that we had because of that. And actually still to this day, we are so close. And I think it's partly because of those hours. We were quite different from one another. He was into skating and stuff. I was into rugby and football and all these sorts of things. But we loved Jesus. And we, want, we wanted so much to know more of God and for our friends to know more of God. And we were bonded in those moments. Pray together. Listen, plug for First Friday prayer. We're starting something. You'll see it in these little booklets or leaflets, whatever you want to call them, on your uh, chairs. Every First Friday of the month, we're going to get up early, we're going to meet in town somewhere, and we're going to pray together. And encourage you, grab people and come along, pray together. Now, when we say that, when we talk about being on mission, sometimes we think about being on mission like Lindsay's parents were out in Nepal. We also have to keep saying this. It's so important. We're all on mission. Do you know that more missionaries come here than leave now? Did you know that? Because there's such a great need. We're post-Christendom here. We've got about 2%, if that, in Glasgow worshiping Jesus. We are all on mission together. We had a question at our Grace Community Training um, from a guy called Ben Franks at Hope Church in, in the Rhonda Valley. He asked us this. He said, look, if you guys as Grace Communities were in India on mission together, how would you spend your time? I was pondering that yesterday when I was doing some DIY and failing miserably and spending far too many hours on it. But I wonder if we should ponder that again together. What are we spending our time on together? Are we on mission together? Number four, the best kind of friends encourage each other. There's a great difference between fun competition and a bit of banter and 
than one-upmanship. Do you enjoy correcting your friends? Do you enjoy knowing something that they don't? Do you enjoy beating them at things a little bit too much? Guilty, sometimes guilty of that one. I know this isn't very Scottish, but it can be really helpful to actually affirm people. Tell them good things about them. It can be really good for people to say to them, I, you know what? I love this about you. I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's be a church of encouragers. Let's be a church who lift one another up. Scottish banter, I hate to say it, I love it at times, but it has a way of being toxic. It has a way of beating people down. We're so concerned about people being big-headed or proud that we can never say something good about them. And anyway, we all end up just with a complex. We need to encourage one another, build one another up. Let's learn to be more like Jonathan. I'm cheating here, okay? I'm going to another part of the passage, chapter 23, verses 15 through 16. It says this, While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped, or sometimes interpreted, encouraged him to find strength in God. I wonder what you've been asking yourself through this whole thing so far. Have you been asking this question? Do I have friends like that? If you've been asking that, that question, can I ask you to reframe it? Can I ask you to ask this question of yourself instead? Am I a friend like that? Because unless we do it that way around, we'll never establish those relationships. Romans 12.10 says this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If we're going to be competitive with each other about anything, let's make it that, yeah? Outdoing one another with honor. Wow. That's the kind of competition we want in this church. Do people leave your company more aware of their strengths and their gifts or their downfalls and their weaknesses? Number five, last thing. The best kind of friend is God himself. These relationships are only truly possible with God. Not just a shared passion for him, but a shared faith and friendship in him. Like Jonathan had the true king of Israel as his friend, you can have the true king of all things as your friend. Like David in Israel, Jesus is the true king of heaven. Like David's triumphal entry, when the brides of Israel come out to celebrate their Savior with choruses of, hallelujah, what a Savior. Now we have Jesus who came into Jerusalem and they shouted out, Hosanna. He's their Savior. He came in with triumphant choruses and now we as the church, his bride, we sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. 
like God was with David, Jesus lived by the Spirit. We see it as he's tempted in the desert, just like David had been tempted. And we see it at his baptism, and then as he ministers to people, and as his kingdom advances. David says of himself in 1823 that he is poor and little known. And then Paul writes to the church in Corinth that Jesus, though rich, became poor. And as Jonathan pleaded with his father not to kill David, because he says he's an innocent man, just in the same way, Pilate said of Jesus that he could find no fault in him. David prefigures Jesus. He's a shadow of this coming king. Jesus is king of all. And we need to get out the way. You have a choice. Do you wear the robes of your own kingdom, ruling and reigning over your own life like Saul? Or do you derobe yourself of your pathetic robes that really are a kingdom that will just die, I hate to tell you? It's just going to fade. Do you take them off and say, Jesus, you're the true king. You take my robes. Take them. And instead receive robes of righteousness from Christ himself who was willing to go to the cross and die in your place so that you might share in this glorious royal priesthood that you would be part of his royal family. Will you surrender to a king who loves you and receive friendship with God himself? Like David and Jonathan were willing to lay down their lives for each other, Jesus, the greater friend, was willing to lay down his life for you. John 15, 13 says this. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You, you, not just the disciples, then you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did that so that we could call him friend. Do you know God is friend? This is the one friendship we all need. And through that shared relationship with God, we can also have these beautiful friendships like Jonathan and David had. You can walk with God by the Spirit. He's poured it out. And you can know God now. You can be in relationship with him. Guys, we don't talk about going and reading your Bible just to read your Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. We say that so that you can go and receive from God himself. We say go and pray, not just so that you can do some sort of religious ritual because you can have a conversation with him, listen to him, not just speak a list out, but actually enjoy him and be with him and be in his presence. We say come to church. We say gather 
you are the church. So sorry I said that. We don't come to church. We are the church. We say come and meet together as the church so that we can be with God and learn from God and know God together so that we can image him together as a community so that we might be known by our love for one another as he loves us. You see, all those relationships that we're talking about, all these incredible friendships that I pray you have flow from God himself. Now, there's one thing I've not mentioned. This shouldn't be then a lesson where we go away and say, okay, lesson is this, I should just make friends with other Christians. No, 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 no. <laughs> we've got we've to go out there and be like Christ to everyone else. But you won't be able to have the same depth with people out there as you do with people who know and love Jesus and who are on mission with you. And that's okay. And we pray that one day we will, as they see that Jesus is Lord and come and be on mission with us too. And you know, like David and Jonathan made this covenant together, Jesus has made a covenant with you. Here's what happened at the Last Supper, the night Jesus was betrayed and led away. He, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So that's what we're going to do in a moment. We're going to take communion together. And as we do, let me just help us get ready for that moment with some words from Joseph Scriven. Now, before I do that, just a quick comment on communion. If you know and love Jesus, please come to the table and take the bread representing the body of Christ given for you. And take the wine representing Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you don't know Jesus, please this isn't, it's not your time yet. It's not your time yet. Come to the table when you do, when you really know him. All right, Joseph Scriven, he wrote this poem called Pray Without Seeing for his terminally ill mother in 1855. And now it's a song that we all will know, well, most of us, I'm sure, will know very well. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you are our best friend that we can know you closely. We can know you intimately now. Lord, I just pray for anyone out there who's feeling distant from you, that in these next moments as we take communion together and we worship and sing and we receive any prophetic words that come, I pray, Lord, that you would draw close to them, that they would sense your presence close. They'd know the truth that you are close.
but also sense you close, know you close in that way. You pour out your Holy Spirit afresh and bring us near. And Lord, we do pray, particularly for those who have felt isolated in the last 18 months, or those of us who have never had that experience of a deep friendship like that, would that change? Would we, as we pursue you together, as we look to meet in groups of around 12, like you did, Jesus, with the disciples and at Grace Communities, and we, we meet in larger groups like this one, like you did often, Lord. We pray that those would not be the end of it, but that we would form deep friendships, not only within our church, but elsewhere too, as we're on mission together, as we love, your, love you together, as we love being on mission together. God, would we be known for our love for, for one another? Would our friendships run deep? Oh, we love you, God. And we want more of your love. We're greedy for your love, Lord. We're so thankful you keep pouring out on us. Grace upon grace. Come, Lord, meet us now. Come, Lord.